Well, good morning, everyone. The matter comes before the court for oral argument in the case of Rainey v. the Indiana Election Commission, representing the appellant in this case is Michelle Harter, morning counselor, representing the appellees are Melinda Holmes for IEC and Mr. Andrew Hicks for Daniel Holtz. Good morning to you as well. It appears that you've all split your time and the Election Commission will use 15 minutes and Mr. Hicks will use five of those minutes on behalf of his client. And then Ms. Harter, it's our understanding that you've reserved five minutes for rebuttal. Yes, Your Honor. Well, I think we've got that all straightened out, so proceed when ready, counselor. All right. We're ready when you are. All right. Good morning. May it please the court, I reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Thank you for having us here today to discuss an issue that impacts all Hoosiers. That is what it takes under Indiana law to be eligible to run for office. I think most of us can agree that the last few years have been difficult. And if anything good has come out of the last few years, it's that average citizens are now more eager and willing to step up and be active participants in their government. Our state and federal constitution allow for such participation. The Indiana, but unfortunately our state law, as interpreted by the Indiana Election Commission and certain major party chairs, does not. Most Hoosiers would be surprised to learn that pursuant to Indiana Code Section 3827, they are ineligible to run for office. My client, Amy Rainey, sure was. Amy Rainey sought to run for state representative. She was not seeking to be Dan Holtz's pork chop, whatever that means. Unfortunately, the Indiana Election Commission found that she did need to be his pork chop. And it bent over backwards to revise. Let's look at the language of the statute that you mentioned. And so, can you focus on that for a minute? Sure. How your client, Ms. Rainey, fits within the plain, ordinary language that's used under the statute. Okay, so the statute, 3827, requires that in order to run as a Republican or a Democrat, Rainey must include a statement of affiliation. And she has to meet one of two conditions. The first one is based on her voting record. So the two most recent primaries in which she voted need to be for the Republican Party in Indiana. So she didn't meet that part, but there's section B, which says the county chairman of the political party with which the candidate claims affiliation in the county the candidate resides certifies that the candidate is a member of the political party. So the key words here are, is a member of the political party. It doesn't say that the party endorses Rainey. It doesn't say that it approves. It doesn't say anything about commitment. Isn't the key word actually certifies? Well. What does that mean? So that's the whole problem, Your Honor. Certification is not defined by the statute. It does require that it is written, but there's no definition for what certification for the purposes of membership is. Okay, so we fall back on our interpretation. What we say is what? The plain, ordinary meaning of the words? Okay, so give us 
what is what is that? What's the plain ordinary meaning of certifies? So certify would be just um, affirms, for instance. So you affirm that they're a member of the political party. So you're you're making a statement that you believe that they're you know yes she's a member of the party. So that's all that needed to be certified here under the plain language, whether she's a member of the party or not, not whether the party approves or anything else. So here, Amy uh, tendered some evidence. She tendered her membership card. She tendered a thank you note signed by all of the Elkhart uh, County chair and his, the whole, uh, the secretary. He claims that the secretary signed it, but you know, she's an agent of him. So if he wasn't aware of her signature, um, he should have been. And so that was signed by him. And then her name appeared on the Elkhart County website as a gold and platinum level sponsor. So that was in writing as well. And then we have testimony from Amy before the commission at the challenge hearing that uh, Mr. Holt specifically said that, hey, you know, if she ran for recorder or uh, I think it was clerk of the court, that he would support that. So certification. It, it's not specific to an office. It um, is written, and it doesn't say anything about intent. So here, he testified during the commission hearing after he challenged her about, I didn't certify her. Well, he may not have intended to certify Amy, but he did, in fact, by giving her a written membership card, a written thank you note, and by having her name on the website, he did provide written certification that she was a member of the party. Well, in, until they got to the hearing, actually, uh, Ms. Rainey uh, did not even understand it. It appears, based on the challenge that Mr. Holtz had filed, that they were challenging her certification, that that came to light at the hearing. That's correct, Your Honor. All right. Yes, so that, that was the first time that she became aware of the challenge, and the challenge was sort of revised from what was written. So the actual challenge language was, uh, Ms. Rainey did not vote in two Republican primaries. Did she seek a continuance of the hearing so that she could prepare herself to address the certification challenge in greater length? She did not, Your Honor, and she didn't believe she needed to because she thought, oh, well, this is, um, you know, I'll just go in there and say the challenge is invalid on its face because it says I didn't vote in two Republican primaries. It doesn't say Indiana, and I did vote in two primaries. I voted in South Carolina, and I voted in Indiana, and also I didn't check that box. So she thought she could go in there and ably um, present her case. She did not realize it was going to turn into um, statutory construction about what certification means and, and other things. If Although she did she know that. she showed up with a tape phone call, right? So she had some evidence with her, maybe anticipating something more than just whether or not she'd voted in a couple of primaries. Perhaps. She probably brought everything she could with her just in case, but I don't think she anticipated There's what no happened. There's no substitute for preparation. That's, That's right. right. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Counsel. Counsel, to get to the issue of statutory construction, we have to get beyond the mootness doctrine. So why does that doctrine not apply here? Um, so... Amy could be precluded in the future from running for office if she switched parties, for instance, or if the statute changed to make it a three primary rule. Um, we don't have any evidence in the record if she voted um, this last primary, so it could happen again with her. But even if it is moot, even assuming it's moot, we have the great public importance exception to the mootness doctrine, or the public interest exception. So there's two elements in Indiana. It's that the matter be a, um, an issue of great public importance here, um, ballot access and voting, which are sort of related to each other, 
Um, very important, I think most citizens would think it's one of their most cherished rights to participate and select their government. So high public importance, I think the parties have sort of conceded and agreed that that's true. And then the second part is it's capable of um, reoccurring. Would so, you agree then that that's really the only way we would be able to pass upon this case? Because it is moot, isn't it? We can't give her any relief because the primary is already over. And so the only way for us to decide this case is on the exception that you've just stated, that it's of great public interest, and so we're going to get to the merits of it. Um, well, provide relief to her, right? Well, you can't restore her to the ballot for sure. You can provide relief uh, looking forward if she runs again and to provide clarity uh, to the law. And certainly if you find that the law is unconstitutional, that would help her going forward if she pursues candidacy for this office or another office. So the issue could reoccur with Rainey, and if not with Rainey, with someone else. So I'm not 100% sure it's moot, but you, you know, the great public importance exception would jump in and, and save this here to have you uh, issue a ruling because she can't appear on the ballot on um, the May primaries obviously passed. Well, um, she could remove any excuse they have by voting in two recent Republican primaries and it doesn't matter whether they want to certify or not. Is that correct? Uh, she, she could have if, I mean, we can't roll back the clock going forward. She could potentially do that, but nothing stops the legislature from saying and there is some pending legislation about this issue, but nothing stops them from tightening up the voting um, going forward and making a three primary rule. For instance, uh, it, we had in the record of the other hearings that some of the folks were kicked off pursuant to the one primary rule and then were told, we'll just run next time. And then the two primary rule was passed and now they're out of luck again. So well, we have three distinct branches of government, right? And, and public policy, unless it runs afoul of the Constitution is in the legislative branch, all right? And you're making what some would say are public policy and maybe good public policy arguments, but that's not the position the court is supposed to take. It's only when they run afoul existing law, not proposed law uh, of the Indiana Constitution, and you have to make a timely request of that. And Judge Ken Worthy uh, brings up a good point, and Judge Piles questioned you on whether or not this is moot at this point and, and is this of great enough public importance uh, to take up now you argue that it is but you could have sought an interlocutory appeal when this case was squarely before the court when the decision came down in March but you chose not to do that so the argument that this that we must act now to address uh, the situation is counter uh, to this uh, appellants prior uh, procedure in this case by not seeking an interlocutory appeal well your honor we would have sought an interlocutory appeal if it would have potentially restored her ballot access but by the time that the court had issued its opinion on uh, the issues in this case it was too late she couldn't get on the ballot in any case and in fact both appellees argued vigorously that in response to my request for a stay that a stay wasn't available and absent a stay well I hate to interrupt you, but you could have sought an interlocutory appeal, all right? And uh, as part of that, you could have sought a stay from the Court of Appeals. You did neither of those things. But the t time we had an order, though, Your Honor, it was March, too late. March, the election's in May. No, it's not too late, all right? Well, we can work quickly when we need to. Right? Well, I agree, Your Honor. Uh, the other side seemed to believe because the ballots were printed, it was a non-option in, in the court as well. Um, but... 
I guess that brings me to, a, to another point and another issue we raised here, our Article 1, Section 12 challenge. So here, Amy had access to the courts, but she didn't have access to meaningful judicial relief here because, because of how the whole election system and the challenge hearing process is set up. There's the challenge hearing, and then less than, or approximately three weeks later, the ballots are printed. And so once the ballots are printed, obviously we're going to have the Indian Election Commission and any challenger argue, whoa, like they did, oh, it's too late, you know, we can't get you back on the ballot. And then they quickly come back and say it's moot. So it's kind of a gotcha moment in terms of you really don't have time to get into court. And actually, uh, I believe the commission phrased it best in their brief when they sort of admitted this problem that there is not time to get a judicial opinion and be restored to the ballot, and then the case becomes moot. Um, so with that concession, I think they're admitting we have an Article I, Section 12 open courts problem. And there, there's, there's many issues, too, with what happened here, um, constitutional and otherwise. So I was going to quickly... Uh, a little bit about, okay, I think you raised... In, in the challenge, Mr. Holtz on the form, when he was given an opportunity to make his opening statement and on his form, he addresses only subsection A, voting in two most recent primary elections. What should we take away from that being that the commission focused on subsection B, which was not raised as the initial reason for the challenge. It was under subsection A. Uh, yes, Your Honor. So that's exactly what happened. Um, so Holtz raised that she didn't vote in two Republican primaries, and, and then when given her chance to speak, Amy said, well, that's factually un not true. I voted here and in South Carolina, and, and that, you know, on the face of the challenge, it was is invalid, and I didn't check the box for my voting record. So at that point, what the commission did is they took it from there, and they said, well, it doesn't matter that you didn't vote, or it doesn't matter that you voted in South Carolina. You didn't vote here, and the statute you know, the statute says here, and then it launched into questions about certification. And it said, well, you know, you, what you presented isn't certification, and it went sort of into the merits of that. And Does that prejudice your client in any way? Absolutely. absolutely. What, explain that to me as why, why we should focus on that. Okay, so in the context of these hearings, because of what I explained about the process, the commission is effectively the last word, practically speaking, on whether or not Amy could appear on the ballot. And so they have to be fair and impartial. And here, it doesn't really evidence fairness and impartiality when they sort of advocated for the challenger. They could have just ended the hearing. They could have said, well, you know, on the face of your challenge, you know, that's not true. That's not our voting record. They could have ended it. They didn't have to launch into certification. And, but they did. So despite the deficient challenge, Holtz argues, well, she knew what I meant. But that's belied by the record where she states that she believes the challenge itself is invalid. And then the commission tries to argue while well, her actual challenge was implied. But again, this doesn't, this doesn't reflect fairness. Where Holtz has the burden of proof, Amy faces not appearing on the ballot, and the commission is effectively the last word. And we actually have a colloquy during the hearing between Holtz and Amy where he asks her, hey, uh, is this your voting record from South Carolina? Show, show me where it's Republican. And she says, uh, at the top. And he says, oh, I acknowledge that. I hadn't seen that before. So that shows what his real challenge was. And 
And then after that, the commission could have asked him, well, sir, what is your actual challenge? They could have asked him anything, but they didn't. They just moved on from that and focused on the certification. And then by the end of the hearing, they had this little, and if you review the record, you'll see for yourself, this little justification for why they did what they did. They said, hey, well, in court, if I issue, a, if I state a wrong code site, um, you know, the court will sustain anyway. Um, so they sort of reformed his challenge and justified it. I see that my time is up. Thank you, counsel. Ms. Holmes, will you be arguing first? Yes, Your Honor. All right, proceed when ready. May it please the court. This case is about an election that has already passed. The court cannot grant Ms. Rainey any relief at this stage, so it doesn't need to decide any of the issues that Ms. Rainey has put forth. Regardless, her claims fail. We're talking about a prerequisite to accessing a political party's primary election ballot that protects both political parties' associational rights and a candidate's rights. States may impose reasonable candidacy requirements. The statute requires at most voting in two party primaries or the certification of your county party chair, a minor burden on candidates' rights justified by the state's interest in protecting political parties' First Amendment rights. And because this case doesn't present any live issues for this court to decide on which the court could grant Ms. Rainey relief, the court should dismiss the appeal as moot or else affirm. So starting with the, the commission's decision um, and, the, and the plain language of the statutes, uh, it's clear that the um, commission was determining what a certification was uh, according to the plain language of the statutes. Well, let's talk uh, about how the, the hearing was conducted, all right? Um, um, you have a challenger that files um, a challenge to the candidacy based on one condition, shows up at the hearing, and um, appears uh, that perhaps a, a board member, sua sponte, all right, raises a challenge based on a different legal theory. And that does not really afford an individual the proper notice of what they'll need to address. It appears that, that uh, Ms. Rainey did a pretty good job of anticipating that and trying to argue what her position was in that. But at the same time, uh, does that strike you as fair to tell somebody that we're going to hear your case based on this and you show up and you hear it based on something else? I'm sure, Your Honor. I, I had first... Um, disagree with Ms. Rainey's characterization of how this challenge uh, was presented. Nothing in Mr. Holtz's challenge necessarily says, I challenge because she hasn't met option A. It says well, her she form says that. Well, the her challenge form, doesn't it? Um, perhaps. It specifically says, I'm challenging under subsection A, right? My understanding is that he wrote that his understanding is that she hasn't participated in two primary elections. Is subsection A. Sure. Right. Sure. Of so, course. So that's, we have explicit evidence that that's what his challenge was. Sure. Well, I'll also say, though, that Ms. Rainey isn't necessarily prejudiced because she understands, this is, again, getting into factual issues that this court doesn't necessarily need to get into, again, the well, standard man, review. Well, we want to, though. All right. <laughs> sure. Okay, at least. Well, uh, you're well, getting questions on. Well, just hang on here, just a sec. The the commission could have just continued the hearing to give her an opportunity. Could have continued it for a day. 
right? They chose not okay. to. Well, and of course, Ms. Rainey didn't ask the court to. She was prepared to talk about the um, box that she checked on her form, which was option B. Um, and th what I was, the point I was going to make is, is as to prejudice, again, she, this is her, uh, a challenge to the validity of her declaration of candidacy. The commission's empowered, once a challenge is brought, to consider the validity of the declaration of, of candidacy. And Ms. Rainey, who selected option B, Mr. Holtz um, and Ms. Rainey, who perhaps had conversations, it seems, in the record about the importance of the voting record for his certification, um, all those things play into this statutory requirement. There's an option A and an option B for party affiliation, and that's what this challenge was about. But nevertheless, the court doesn't second guess the commission's factual determinations, um, but instead, if the commission's decision was supported by substantial evidence, the court should affirm. But they excluded proffered evidence or offered evidence of a tape recording. We don't have the, I suppose, um, the recording to listen to for ourselves as to what uh, evidence of certification might have been contained therein. The, the basis was that it wasn't consented to by both parties, and I don't know that that's legally correct in Indiana, all right? Sure. If the court wants to consider that, I, I believe it is in the record if the it court is. wants to I'm consider the, that transcript, but I think the point, the important point is to stick with the statutory language, okay, which requires... Okay, it says certifies her membership. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? So, going with the plain language of the statute, um, if the court consults a dictionary, for example, which is a very reasonable way to, to consider the plain language, uh, a certification is um, it's a, a, a formal statement. It's, um, I, I think I wrote down. Formal assertion in writing of a fact. Yes, that, that would be a reasonable interpretation of the plain language. So she submitted a copy of her membership card to the Elkhart County Republican Party and a note saying basically thank you. Why isn't that a formal assertion of her membership in the Elkhart County Republican Party? Well, the, the statute actually isn't asking for her to demonstrate party membership or party affiliation. It's, it's requesting it says, certification. certifies that the candidate is a member of the political party. Right. So, and, and in the end of this, this provision, it says that the candidate must attach to the declaration of candidacy the written certification of the county chairman. Um, and this certification must be from the county chairman for purposes of the statute. It's, it's clear that this isn't asking the commission or the court to independently assess whether she is a member of the Republican Party, whatever that might mean. Um, but instead, this is giving these two options. Um, the candidate can obviously vote in the two primary elections or um, request that the county chair provide his or her written certification uh, for purposes of the statute. And a membership card that has her name on it um, and a, a thank you card saying thank you for dues. What, uh, the is commission, the, uh, what does the membership card say? Um, I believe it says um, member, actually I don't think I have that. All right, I'll, here's what it says. Okay, thank you. Is a dues paying member of the Elkhart County Indiana Republican Party for the aforementioned calendar year, and it says 2022. The statute seems to be written broadly enough to encompass, encompass this language. It's a written assertion of a fact that she is a member of the Republican Party in Elkhart County. 
Respectfully, respectfully, I disagree, Your Honor, that right, that's sufficient under the statute. Persuade me as sure to why the, it doesn't fit. Sure, the, this, the statute requires a certification by the county chairman. And we can understand a certification, again, to mean a formal statement. Um, and, and the statute by its plain text says, by the county chairman. This membership card, clearly we don't have any evidence that this is a formal statement written by the county chairman. So that shouldn't qualify under the statute. And the commission very reasonably determined that it wasn't sufficient, that this wasn't certification. So under the plain language of the statute, certification is something else than what Ms. Rainey has provided here. And it's very reasonable that the commission uh, concluded that she didn't. What, what is it? Certification. Yeah. Uh, again, if it's not a membership card from the party, what is certification? I think a certification is something from the county chairman saying, I certify that this person is a member of this party. And that is submitted for the purpose of this statute, of meeting this condition to run in a primary election. Would, and this, would this language here be vague in your view then? If, no. If people can disagree about what that means, obviously she thought, hey, a card from the Republican Party saying I'm a member is enough. No, Your Honor. You're saying it needs to be something else. Sure. I mean, if there's reasonable disagreement about what specifically under certain factual situations constitutes certification, that doesn't necessarily render the statute vague, um, unconstitutionally vague in any uh, sense, certainly. Um, instead, it's, it's certainly up for um, the commission to consider the evidence before it and determine whether it fits the statutory term of certification under the plain language of the statute. So it's not vague. Um, it's, it's not vague if it requires some discretion on the part of the party chair to determine whether or not he or she will provide a certification. Um, and it's clear that someone can put forth evidence of certification, and the commission can uh, consider whether that meets the statutory definition. And the commission reasonably concluded that it didn't meet that definition here. Now, excuse me, as the chair of the Republican Party, is Mr. Holtz not responsible for the acts of his agents? Um, certainly there, there's some perhaps agency law considerations here, but I think what's important in this situation is that the, um, this is requiring a certification by the county chair of the person's party membership for purposes of running in this primary election. And so having uh, his secretary sign a card on his behalf when there is a factual question that you know, hasn't been passed upon either. Um, I don't think that's, um, the commission certainly was, was, was well within um, the statutory uh, bounds when it concluded that it didn't satisfy certification under the statute. And obviously, voting rights are, are very important to citizens of the United States. Why should the public interest exception not apply here? Sure, of course. Of course, um, this court and other courts have heard cases that have become moot under the a public interest exception. But I want to direct this court to the um, second element that um, Ms. Rainey's counsel already identified, which is it has to be likely to recur while still evading review. And as the court has already indicated in some of its questions, um, the court, courts are capable of issuing decisions expeditiously. And in this case, this case isn't a great example because Ms. Rainey did not necessarily take advantage of all the opportunities um, before her, such as seeking an interlocutory appeal. Is that, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Would you concede that the commission follows the Administrative Orders and Procedures Act? 
Yes, Your Honor. Okay. So what interlocutory appeal do you believe she could have used, of right or by or discretionary? Um, well, I believe I'm, I'm talking about an interlocutory appeal of the trial court's judgment, which um, affirmed. So I would say this is under the court's. Which is after the primary. No, no, it wasn't after the primary at all. So the court's decision was issued. The first denial was issued um, of her preliminary relief request in, on, in March. Um, and the primary didn't happen until May. So which, which interlocutory appeal would she have been able to? Um, I believe as, as of right, although I'm not sure okay. if that was discussed so by the party parties. That's 14A, and specifically 14A says there has to be a specific statute for her or for the her to seek uh, review. And at least as far as I'm aware of, the only two administrative agencies where you can seek administrative review as of right are the Civil Rights Commission and Fair Housing. And if I'm wrong, tell me, but that's what it says under the Administrative Orders and Procedures Act. And so Thank I guess you. I question that assertion that she had the ability to do that. Well, I, I believe that she paired her petition for review with a, a complaint and a request for injunctive relief. And so when you're denied um, preliminary injunctive relief, you have the ability to seek an interlocutory appeal. That's my understanding, but I do apologize if, right. if I'm incorrect. So you would say under, under that that subsection, you would say that she would have the ability to do that? I believe so, okay. Your Honor. So I think most people would agree government's better when people participate. That is that they become informed and they vote and that and the candidates run for office and people have choices, all right? And, and here you have a statute that creates a stumbling block to someone participating as a, a uh, candidate in a uh, primary election and a stumbling block to voters for considering that candidate. Uh, how does that not run afoul of the Indiana Constitution? Yes, Your Honor. I, I disagree that this is a stumbling block. This might create some barrier to ballot access. It requires, again, at most. We'll, we'll call it an intrusion. It was a poor choice of sure. words. Or it, was well, an, sure. it is an intrusion, mm -hmm. all right. Sure. Well, at most this is a minor intrusion. So when considering issues like this brought under the First and Fourteenth Amendments, um, courts are going to apply the Anderson Burdick test. And that first part of that test is to consider is this a minor or a severe burden on ballot access. And we see in the Seventh Circuit case very recently called Hero that was cited in the briefs that the Seventh Circuit identified um, this sort of restriction, which prevented someone from running in the primary, um, as just a minor burden um, and reasonable um, that required, that can be very easily justified by the state's interest in protecting parties' associational rights. This, is, this statute walks the line between balancing political parties' First Amendment rights, which are well recognized um, in the case law, and candidates' rights as well, and voters' rights. And so to have this modest requirement of a two-party primary or the certification of the county chair isn't a, a severe intrusion into ballot access. So again, in Hero, what the Seventh Circuit said is that a low level of scrutiny applied because um, Indiana law provides alternative means of accessing the general election ballot. When we're talking about primaries, we're talking about ultimately the ability to be on the ballot to become an elected official or to have the opportunity to try. And so even if you are excluded from a party's primary in one instance, that isn't necessarily a severe burden. It's not an entire disenfranchisement. And that's what the Anderson verdict test is all about. 
And so again, since this is simply a minor restriction on ballot access, the court should consider the state's interest, which the US Supreme Court and the Seventh Circuit has described as a strong interest in protecting the political party's rights of association as well. And again, this doesn't entirely bar individuals from running in the, um, in the primary. They can still access it by run, running in the two primaries beforehand or voting in the two primaries or else getting the certification of the chair. Um, and I see that my time is up and I can turn this over to Mr. Hicks. All right, thank you, Ms. Holmes. Mr. Thank Hicks, you may proceed when you are ready. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. Uh, so just as a bit of touch up, Rule 14A5 does allow for an interlocutory appeal by right for a denial of a TRO. So in this case, after our trial court judge denied their motion for a preliminary injunction and temporary restraining order, they could have appealed it by right in March. So to answer that question, um, that, was, that was a possibility. Um, so it wouldn't have been a discretionary interlocutory appeal. I'd also like to touch on a couple of, piece of pieces of evidence. With regard to the Administrative Orders and Procedures Act in the Indiana Elections Commission in the basis in construing the facts that they use to support their factual determination, there's evidence to show that Dan Holtz and Amy Rainey both knew what they were arguing about that day. So in there, Amy Rainey on her CAN2 form did not check that she had voted in two primaries. She checked that she was certified. Dan Holtz, in his testimony that day, and in his explanation, which he explained in his testimony, was that he talked to local members of the party, talked about her candidacy for state rep, and decided that it was a small burden to vote in two primaries over the course of her 20 years in Indiana, and that that was a low burden to meet, and he wasn't going to certify her. She knew this because at the hearing, she introduced a letter from another precinct committeeman saying that he supported her to candidacy, and she also it tried to introduce evidence, which the election commission didn't agree with um, to allow in, about in a conversation that was allegedly recorded. So uh, you mentioned that I think it was Mr. Holtz's determination that it was a small burden to ask somebody to vote in two primaries, right? And yes. I don't know if the record bears it out one way or another, but is that a consistent approach uh, Mr. Holtz has taken when other candidates have sought certification? I think that this is a case-by-case -case determination. I think that that was his decision for this that candidate. Case. So that and, wasn't his policy, but that was his decision in this case. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, because there are situations where I'm sure Mr. Holtz would have to put somebody on the ballot that may not have voted in two primaries. For instance, let's say there's a vacancy and he needs to appoint somebody. As a county chair, he would need to certify, which the certification would be in writing. It would be a letter from Mr. Holtz saying that he certifies this candidate for this position. I mean, his job as a county chair is to make sure that they put the candidates up to represent the party and the party's platform for the voters. 
as Republicans. So then each party gets to put their own people up. Each party gets to decide who wins or, you know, who is going to be for the primary elections, who gets to represent them on the ballot in November. And there's, this does not prevent Mrs. Rainey from running as an independent. It does not prevent her from taking part in the political process. It does not prevent her from even running for county chair to take, to run to be Holtz's replacement. What it does, but if he doesn't certify her, she can bypass him by simply voting in another primary election, which if she has, then this is moot on her behalf. It's not our job to anticipate what legislation may or may not come up in the future. That would be, that would have to come up at that time. Um, the, the other point about this is, I, I think it's kind of lost a little bit on this idea of there's never an ability to, oh, it looks like we're Like your time. time's up, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Harder, you have five minutes. Thank you, Your Honor. A few quick points. I want to go back real quick. Uh, first, I want to talk about the whole mootness issue and uh, speculative relief. Here, we have a statute that's unconstitutional, and this court's job under Marbury versus Madison is to sort that out um, in terms of the constitutionality. The legislature isn't the appropriate body for that. Here, we have precedent from the United States Supreme Court that has never upheld a challenge greater than one year to someone having ballot access or voting in an election. And in the context of those uh, situations, it's been in a closed primary state or sore loser law. So here, Indiana is essentially an open primary state. Anyone can vote in any primary. So it's not showing loyalty to the party. So the articulated interest in their briefing of the Indiana Election Commission was to show party commitment. Well, here, the statute can never do that because anyone can vote in any primary. We've got single issue voters, and we've also got a state that's got a Republican supermajority. In many cases, the primary is the election. So if they don't vote, they don't get a say, which could cause folks to vote in a primary that isn't for their party. Another problem is we have case law from the United States Supreme Court that says that locking someone into a party for over or for 23 months in um, one case is too long. Here it's 48 months of being locked into a primary. Um, voters can only express their preferences through the candidates that run. As issues change and things evolve, people may have to change their party affiliation. So to say that uh, it's just a two-inch hurdle you got to jump over, that doesn't really cut it when we look at the jurisprudence about ballot access and the freedom of voters and those candidates who want to run to freely associate with a party. So you can change your mind, or you should be able to change your mind, but this statute makes that not so. So we have a real problem that we really need the court to weigh in on. There's a case, another panel of this court decided, Ray versus State Election Board, that addressed this issue. The election already passed. The court heard it anyway, um, deciding that it was public important exception apply, or um, to the mootness doctrine applied, right? And they were concerned in that case about a 30-month restriction. It has, an, uh, in dicta, a comment about, nah, we're not sure this is constitutional. It's a 30-month restriction. Here we're looking at 48 months. Um, also, Hero, the case touted by my appellees about, oh, it's a minor restriction. 
That involved a ban from Mr. Hero of the Republican Party because he was putting up signs for the libertarians. We just don't have those facts here. Amy didn't put up signs for an independent party. She's a Republican. She shouldn't be forced to run as a party she doesn't, isn't a member of uh, just, just to come, you know, please the party chair. That's, that's not how the Constitution works here. Um, but isn't that for the legislature to decide? Well, the legislature doesn't decide the Constitution. And here we actually have a little bit of a problem where they are sort of doubling the length of time that the Constitution requires for you to be an Indiana resident, which arguably is amending the Constitution without going through the proper process. So if the Constitution says you need to be an Indiana resident, I think it's for two years. Um, and this is making it so you have to be for four, because Amy voted in South Carolina. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense, and that, that's unconstitutional. We can't do that without a proper constitutional amendment. And then our Indiana Constitution protects us as well. And we didn't talk about that at all today, unfortunately, but we have an equal protection issue where it, are you more Republican because you voted in Indiana than if you voted in South Carolina? Argu arguably not, where we have an open primary state. And so Amy shouldn't have been treated differently than someone that had two primaries in Indiana. So other people who move here and choose to make Indiana their home shouldn't have, um, you know, they shouldn't be excluded from the ballot for that reason alone. That, that doesn't pass constitutional muster. And then we, we also have, when I have 30 seconds, but we have lots of problems with the statutory construction here. And I don't think the other side has adequately addressed those at all. So I really encourage this court, I know it's probably already done so, to you know, look at the record, look at how that hearing went, look at how the statute was applied. Um, there's some factual assertions that the other side put forward that just aren't borne out by the record. Um, I thank you for your time in having us this morning. I know it's rare to get to argue before this court, and it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Counselor. <clears throat> well, as you all know, we'll take this matter under advisement, um, approach it with the all diligence of the court and issue an opinion in due course. Um, we want to thank counsel for all parties uh, for their excellent briefing of these issues and their presentations here today. Your clients were all well served by you being their attorneys in this case. And with that, we're adjourned in this matter. Thank you.